All right, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're at today. Uh, Pastor Joe preached last week, did a great job with his text in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, right? Kind of made that transition for us. I'm super thankful for him. Um, I know you are as well. I hope that you will take some time uh, to tell him and Pastor Dylan how thankful you are uh, for them. Pastor Dylan is actually out today preaching uh, at a church that needed pulpit supply this morning, and he's delivering God's word to them, and we're thankful for that. Uh, there were a few things last week that really stood out to me besides being compared to LeBron James at the very beginning of the service. Like I was, I was trying to get your attention to move your microphone like up on your shirt while you were saying all that, but I was like, I think you just like that's that's never happened before, and it, and it will never happen again. I'm sure. A um, couple other things that stood out to me more importantly. Uh, Joe did a good job of highlighting Paul's pastoral heart as he engages with the people who've often caused him grief and sorrow and pain. Um, Paul was motivated by love. He wanted to spare the people more pain. He wanted to labor alongside them for their joy rather than lord over them in some kind of dictatorial fashion. It was good to see that even though the painful letter was confrontational, uh, it was motivated by love, and it was intended to produce repentance and restored fellowship, which we will talk a great deal about today. Uh, the fact that I've been, the part that I've been chewing on all week, though, was the last application that Pastor Joe made about knowing true joy that is only found in union with Christ and seeing the local church as the center of that great joy, like recognizing that our, our, our source of joy is the Lord Jesus Christ, but one of the centers of experiencing that joy is, is the local church. That was that was really good and really important to see. And uh, he asked some questions uh, about that. He said, do you know true joy that is found only in union with Christ? Do you have a relationship with the Father through the Son? Have you repented of your sins and put all of your trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Do you know true joy that is found only in Christ? Or are you chasing joy from some other source? Like, true joy is only found in Christ. You're, you're going you're gonna to look for it in a lot of other places and not find it. Um, are you experiencing that joy in Christ? Secondly, he asked, do you delight in sharing that joy with other believers? More specifically, he said, do you want to be here more than anywhere else because of your union with Christ and because of your fellowship with other brothers and sisters? That was a great question. Um, and, he, and he said, one of the answers to those questions are, yes, yes, I, found my, I find my true joy in Christ. And yes, I delight in sharing that with you, specifically here at First Baptist Church. And there's no place I would rather be. Well, if, that, if you answer yes to that with an exclamation point, praise the Lord, right? That, that is a good work that he has done in your heart. And continue to chase that uh, with all of your energy and with all of your might. Uh, some of you, though, if you're honest, you'll have to say, no, uh, Jesus is not my true joy. I don't have a relationship with the Father through the Son. I, I have not repented and I'm not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would invite you even already today, like Joe did last week, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. There's no other salvation. There's no other name uh, by which men must be saved other than him. And he saves all those who come to him in faith. So, so turn to him. His, the Father's arms are open wide, right? Forgiveness was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe today. But the last thing that Joe said is really what's been stuck in, in my mind. He says, some of you, if you are honest, you'll have to say sometimes. Sometimes Jesus is my joy. And sometimes my great delight is to enjoy him with you. Sometimes. 
Maybe that sounds like, oh, well, Jesus and fill in the blank. That brings me joy. As long as it's Jesus and this, then I'm full of joy. Or sometimes Jesus brings me joy when he does this. When, when he answers my prayers this way and not that way. Jesus is my joy as long as this happens in my relationship with him. Or maybe even my church is central to my experience of that joy. As long as fill in the blank with a thousand different things there, right? As long as they sing the music I like to sing. Uh, as long as the temperature is to my liking. As long as the service doesn't go ten minutes over. Jesus is my joy till 12.00. 12.01, not my joy anymore. If we're honest, we would all say sometimes, right? We all struggle with that. To see Jesus as our great joy all the time. And to delight in our fellowship with one another all the time. That's where we want to head. Well, this week we'll continue in Paul's pursuit of restoration and unity in the church in Corinth. Today we're going to see that the painful letter, it was effective. The church responded to that painful letter by disciplining the offender, and the offender repented. And now, they need to forgive him. They need to comfort him. They need to reaffirm their love for him so that Satan doesn't accomplish his mission in destroying the church and leading people away from Jesus. It might be good to do a little reconstruction in our introduction here uh, to know how we got where we are in today's text. It's important to remember that Paul was made aware of some issues in Corinth. Corinth, this church that he planted, this church that he nourished, this church that he spent a great deal of time with, he heard about some issues that had arisen there, and so he made a flying trip to see them, and that trip went horribly. It went terribly wrong. It seems like perhaps one person, maybe with a few followers or supporters, one person really went after Paul, uh, attacked him on some level, whether that's personally or spiritually or maybe even physically, uh, they attacked him, and so he left. He left abruptly, and it did, not, it did not end well. And he followed up that visit with a letter, a letter that we refer to as the painful letter. It's referred to in our text today. Uh, it was in our text last week. Pastor Joe referred to it. It seems clear that that severe letter or painful letter called out the sin in Corinth, particularly with this one person, the one who committed the sin, it called him to repentance. It called for discipline in the case of unrepentance. That letter was hard for Paul to write. He admits it, right? He makes that clear. It was out of sorrow and much anguish of heart that I wrote to you these things. It was hard for Paul to write that severe letter. It was no doubt hard for the Corinthians to read that severe letter. It was not a pleasant experience to get a letter from their apostle Paul rebuking them, rebuking him, calling for hard punishment as a result. It was hard for them to read, but it was for the best. And we're going to see how it played out today. We're going to see that it played out for the best. And hopefully, as we look at it, we can learn some important lessons that will apply to our life together as a local church. So let's read together in chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're really going to zoom in on verses 5 through 11, but I want you to see kind of how it builds uh, through verses 1 to 4. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Don't, don't forget that this is God's word. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? 
This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the chance to be together as your people in this local church. We rejoice in the grace that you have shown to us in reconciling us to yourself through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice that you have redeemed us, not just as individuals, but you have redeemed us together as a family. Lord, we want to live in the unity that you have secured through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we want to recognize our responsibility to strive to maintain that unity, that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so we ask for your help. Help us to speak the truth. Help us to call for repentance. Help us to repent of our sins. Help us to forgive. Help us to restore. And do all of this, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be able to walk through uh, verses 5 through 11 today, just verse by verse, and see some really important things. Look at verse 5. He says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. The word any there at the beginning of verse 5 is probably better translated any one. Most other translations besides New American Standard go that direction. And most scholars agree that this is a reference to the individual who caused the ruckus when Paul visited earlier. The individual who went after him and he left town during that painful visit. Some will say that, that this is a reference to the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's this guy in Corinth, in the church, who is living proudly in blatant sexual immorality. You may remember that it says he has his father's wife. And they're boasting about how accepting they are of this whole thing. Well, there are some people that would say the issue here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is the same issue. The man in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that is being disciplined is the same guy from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I will say it's hard to narrow that down exactly. And it being hard to narrow down exactly is actually for our good. Because the Corinthians who received this letter would have known exactly to what and to whom Paul is referring in this text. But it's kind of good for us to be a little bit in the dark about the details so that we can apply the principles that we see in the text broadly. Right, track with me. In other words, if we say with absolute rigidity that this is the man who has his father's wife, 
that the one being addressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is the man who has his father's wife, then we might narrow our application to exactly the parallel situation in our life. And we would say, I've never, I've never dealt with that before. And we don't see that very often in, in the church. And so how, how, what, do we, what do we do with this text? What I'm arguing is it's good that we don't narrow this down exactly so that we see general principles that will apply to a number of different situations within the church. We discern the principles in this text and apply them broadly within the church. There are two main things, though, I want you to see in verse 5. First, I want you to see that Paul downplays the personal nature of the offense. Joe did a good job last week of showing us that for Paul, all of this is not about him. All of this ruckus between him and the church, even the union that he's trying to bring back, it's not really about him. It's not a personal defense. It's not his personal reputation that's at stake. He's thinking broadly about the whole church. And in this text, he downplays the personal nature of the offense. Look what he says. He says, he has caused sorrow not to me. Well, certainly Paul has experienced sorrow, right? Certainly Paul has been offended here, but what he's doing as he talks to the church is he's minimizing, he's minimizing the personal nature of the offense. He doesn't talk much about that. Rather, secondly, I want you to see that Paul highlights the corporate nature of the damage that's been done. Look at how he says it in verse 5. He says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. He has caused sorrow to all of you. Basically, what Paul says here is that it's not a stretch to say that this one has caused sorrow to the entire church by what he has done to the Apostle Paul. And that concept of the corporate nature of our life together is a, is a theme that is seen throughout the scriptures, right? This is a theme that even Paul talks about in other places. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which all of chapter 12, by the way, is instructive about our life together. It's where he uses the image of a body, like the church as the body of Christ, like together we are the body of Christ individually. We are specific members of it, right? Eyes or ears. Do you remember this whole text? Well, look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. He says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Right? The word member there is, is body part. It's not member in like formal, uh, got your name on a list. Like went through an initiation, paid your dues, and got your name on a list. Not membership like country club membership. It's membership like this is, this is a member of my body. Right, The body part. If one part of the body suffers, all the body suffers with it. If one part of the body rejoices, the entire body rejoices with it. That's the principle that he states there. And then at the end, he says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You, in verse 27, is plural. Y'all, y'all are Christ's body, right? Together, we are Christ's body. Individually, we're just members of it. And if one of those members suffers, the whole body suffers. If one of those parts is rejoicing, the whole, part is, the whole body is rejoicing. You get the idea here? That's why he says, this is an offense, this is a sorrow, not just to me, but it's not a stretch to say that this sorrow that is mine is all of y'all's sorrow. Make sense? It's not just restricted here to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a principle that he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a statement that he also makes in Romans chapter 12. 
when he says that we in the church rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words, there's no concept of you rejoicing off by yourself and not affecting the other people in the body. There's no concept of you weeping off by yourself and not being part of the body. We are together. Y'all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So that when Paul is sorrowful, when Paul is offended, when Paul is suffering, when there's beef between Paul and part of the church, there's beef in the entire church. Paul is highlighting the corporate nature of it. So the application from verse 5 is never ever think only about yourself in the church. You never ever get to think only about yourself within the body of Christ. Rather, you got to think about the whole church, the family. Because we are in this together always. So he downplays the personal nature of the offense. He highlights the corporate nature of the damage. And that's what he's going to address. He's not clearing his own beef with this guy. He's addressing a matter that's affected the entire church. Look at verse 6. He says, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. This verse is why I would argue that the painful letter was effective. The church has taken action, according to this verse, to punish the one who caused the sorrow. Punishment is actually a really good translation of the word here. Even though that word punishment makes us nervous. Like if we started talking about us punishing one of us, that would make everyone in the room uncomfortable, right? Like if at the next business meeting I said, uh, new business, we're going to punish Mr. X. We'd be like, whoa, 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 wait a second. We don't do that, but that's exactly the language that is used here. The word is only used here in in the New Testament, but outside of the Bible, it's used for official legal ramifications, legal judgments, consequences on someone for an, an offense. And it would seem here that the whole church, the majority, it says, perhaps excluding the dude and his friends maybe, the whole church took official action against the offender And punished him. And this inflicting of punishment by the church is not a one off thing in 2 Corinthians. This is actually a pattern that is established by Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, Matthew 18 is super instructive here. Look at Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins, right? If your brother, not not an outsider, your brother, if he sins, not, not if he Uh, makes a mistake, not if there's misunderstanding and miscommunication, if he sins. That's what's at stake here. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Circle that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. You have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Right? There's this process. If your brother sins, you go talk to him. Why? Because you want to bring about repentance. Win your brother, right? If he doesn't repent, then it escalates. And it escalates until the last action of the church, the church as a whole, is to put him out, treat him as a sinner and a tax collector, right? That's hard stuff. Sounds like punishment that Paul is talking about 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This also fits not just with Jesus' words in Matthew 18, but with Paul's specific direction to the church in Corinth about how to deal with the proud sinner in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Flip over there. It's too long to put on the screen. It's just a couple pages over, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed Uh, who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Circle that. We're going to come back to it. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not all mean the immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then, you would have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Matthew 18, Jesus gives an outline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, yeah, you got to do that. You, you can't just let this go. You've got to put that guy out. Now, whether this is the exact same situation in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 or not, the process and the principles apply, and the church took the action, which is not easy to do, right? Sufficient for such a one is the punishment inflicted by the majority. They evidently took this action, which is not easy to do, And the action was effective. You see in the text it says that it was sufficient. In other words, it was enough. What they did was enough to accomplish the desired purpose. And what's the desired purpose? Always to bring about repentance and restoration. That's why I had you circle in Matthew chapter 18. To win your brother. What's the goal of the confrontation? To show how righteous you are? To heap condemnation upon his head? What's the goal? To win the brother. To win the brother to repentance and to restoration. What's the purpose of handing him over to Satan in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? So that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of church discipline is always repentance and restoration. The goal of these hard conversations is always repentance and restoration. We do the hard thing to get to that. 
And what we're going to learn in this text is that when we get to that, you got to do another hard thing. It's hard to confront a brother in his sin. It's called, it's hard to call him to repentance. It's hard to escalate that to where we would put him out of the church. But it's worth it if it brings about repentance. And if it brings about repentance, then you got to do another hard thing, which is what we see in verse 7. He says, So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul seems to indicate here that the offender has been convicted, he has repented, and now he stands in danger of drowning in his despair if he's not embraced by the church and forgiven by the church. Now, uh, to be frank, this is not a scene that I think happens very often in the church today, in my experience. More often, what I see is that people stay hardened in their sin, people despise any hint of discipline, And they either walk away from the faith entirely or simply walk away from one church in order to latch on to another body who is unfamiliar with the offense. I don't see this kind of thing happening very often where someone is called out, there is maybe even punishment inflicted, there is real repentance and a desire to be restored, and the church is like, "Mm, don't think so. Most of the time that guy moves on. But there is a real danger in this text. This scene is a real danger. And the work of forgiveness and restoration is difficult work. Difficult as confrontation. Difficult as repentance. The work of forgiveness and restoration is also difficult work. And yet, this idea that is repeated in Scripture is that we who have been forgiven much are expected to forgive much. So the work of our forgiveness is work that is rooted in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. To state it negatively, our unwillingness to forgive is probably a prime indicator that we have not experienced true forgiveness ourselves. Let me lay this out biblically. Carrie read from Matthew 18 earlier, right? Peter's question after Jesus' outline of church discipline. You realize that that Jesus has just said, Confront your brother, maybe you've won him. If not, take some more with you. If not, take it to the church. If not, put him out. It is right on the heels of that that Peter says, "Um, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times. I do seven times. And Jesus says, no, I'm telling you 70 times seven. And then he tells that parable, right? That's a crazy story, isn't it? That gets you going a little bit, doesn't it? The one who owes a vast fortune is forgiven just by the grace of the master. He doesn't deserve that. He he even admits it. He says, I've got no way to repay this. Forgive me. And the master says, I'll wipe it clean. And then he goes and finds a fellow slave of his who owes him pocket change, jokes him out, pay me what you owe me. And if you don't pay me, I'm going to send you and your family to jail. And the master hears about the unwillingness of that forgiven slave to forgive his brother And he's furious, right? And he says, get rid of that guy. Send him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And do you know that the last verse of that, verse 35, look at this, Matthew 18, 35. After he talks about the condemnation of the unforgiving slave, he says, my heavenly father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. He tells that whole parable to get to that, right? 
That's the application of the parable. You've been forgiven a bunch. If you are in Christ, a fortune that you could never repay. Wiped clean by the grace of the master. You who have been forgiven much must also forgive much. It's not only taught there by Jesus, it's also in Matthew chapter 6, right after the model prayer, part of which is, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Right after that, as Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he teaches a lesson about forgiveness. He circles back to the principle of forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Did you know it said that? It seems like a big deal. It seems like a big deal that we would be forgiving of each other. Paul definitely has this as a theme as he writes to churches. We see it really clearly in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Right? You've been forgiven. So what do you do in response to that? You forgive each other. And that's where the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is struggling. They've confronted, they've punished, the man has repented, and now Paul says, do the hard work and forgive this man. Notice the language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Forgive him, comfort him, reaffirm your love for him. The punishment was formal and it was effective. And now, Paul is saying the reinstatement also needs to be formal. And it needs to be effective. And all of this, all of this is motivated by grace. So listen, when you find yourself struggling to forgive someone, especially within the church, when, when, when you struggle with looking at the repentant sinner and say, I will comfort you, I will forgive you, I will reaffirm my love for you, when you're struggling with that, what should you do? Well, it seems to me like it would be a good idea to reflect on your own forgiveness. It seems like when we're struggling to forgive others, maybe we should spend some serious time outlining our own sin. Like our own laundry list of rebellion and transgression. Maybe we should spend some time pondering the ways we have broken God's law. Maybe we should spend some time reflecting on what we truly deserve from the Holy God because of our sins. Maybe we should reflect on uh, Mark chapter 15, Jesus on the cross crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that's what it looks like. That that's what you deserve because of your sin. Maybe you should spend some time reflecting not just on the bad news, but on the good news the sweet grace of God in your life. That though you deserve all of his wrath and all of his condemnation, he has welcomed you in as his son or daughter. He has adopted you into his family and counted the righteousness of Christ to your account. Maybe you need to spend some time pondering how much you have been forgiven if you're struggling to forgive those around you who have offended you. All of this is motivated by the grace of God. Comfort, forgive, reaffirm your love for him. That's hard work. Look at verse 9. 
He says, for to this end I also wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. As Joe preached last week, uh, I noticed Paul give three motives for writing the severe letter. You, you pointed out one of them and spent a ton of time on one of them, which is good. But three motives, I think. Number one, he wanted to spare them further sadness and sorrow. He didn't think it would do much good to come back in person and inflict more sadness, more sorrow on them. So he's trying to spare them of that. Secondly, he was trying to spare himself uh, the ripping off of the scab by going right back in when there's been no progress made. Right. Secondly, he was sparing himself the sorrow of revisiting the wound. Thirdly, he wanted to display his love for them in confronting them with the truth. He says, it was because of love that I wrote to you and didn't come visit you. It was out of love that I confronted you with the truth. Well, here seems to be a fourth motive for writing the severe letter, namely to test the genuineness of their faith in obedience. To test their faith with obedience. Faith and obedience are always traveling together, right? Faith and obedience are always traveling together. Paul will even go so far as to call it the obedience of faith, right? Faith being the root, obedience being the fruit. Faith is displayed in full obedience, not partial obedience, full obedience. So what he says here is, I wrote to you to put you to the test, the test of your faith, whether you are obedient in all things. And the great news is the group passed the test. Right? At least up to this point, they have passed the test. They have been obedient. They've been obedient to confront the man in his sin. They've been obedient to punish him if he's unrepentant. And now he's saying, go the whole way and be fully obedient and now welcome the repentant sinner back into the church. It was a test. And friends, I think that walking with Jesus is a test every day. A test of obedience every day. I think when we walk with Jesus, he's constantly calling us to do hard things. Every day we will face a test. Will we be obedient to the Lord or not? Do we believe him enough to be obedient to him? Do we really believe him? There is an astonishing thing Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 verse 46. Maybe let these words ring in your ears this week as you face doing the hard things. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You get what he's saying there? Oh, you say, I'm the boss, I'm the boss. Oh, you say, I'm the master, I'm the master. But you don't do what I say. That seems to be proof. Doing what he says seems to be proof of what you say, right? That's why I'm arguing that, that if we believe, we will obey. And every day we are facing the test of obedience, which is ultimately a test of faith. Do we really believe in him? If we do, we'll do what he says. Look at verse 10. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. If indeed, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. There, there are just a ton of parallels between verse 10 here and verse 5 at the beginning of our text today, where Paul is downplaying the personal, if I have forgiven anything, right? If it's even an offense, He's downplaying his personal, and he's highlighting the corporate. He says, you and I forgive. I forgive for your sakes. In other words, Paul is teaching, we are in this together. This is not a matter just between Paul and Mr. X, whoever that offender is. 
It's about the church as a whole. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the gospel. And he's fighting for that. This phrase, in the presence of Christ, is super interesting. One scholar notes, it literally means in the face of Christ. Right? If I have forgiven him anything, I've done it for your sakes in the face of Christ. The scholar goes on and says, as if Christ is looking on in approval and empowerment. So he says, you forgive him, I forgive him. We'll forgive him together in the face of Christ. Jesus looking on in approval, like, yeah, this is what, this is what my people do. When there's repentance, there's forgiveness and restoration. That's what my people do. He's looking on in approval of that and also empowering it. He's empowering that kind of forgiveness because of the forgiveness he has provided for us. Why in the world can we forgive each other of our offenses? Because we have been forgiven by him. We are the slaves who have been forgiven, therefore we can forgive those around us. Maybe, maybe this whole thing is a reminder, once again, of the forgiveness that we have received in Christ, which is why we're going to take the supper today. Because that's to serve as a reminder of the forgiveness we have experienced in Christ. And that should compel us to forgive one another. But then look at verse 11. He says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This may be the climax of the whole passage today. Friends, brothers and sisters, we cannot be ignorant of Satan's schemes. You know that he is constantly scheming against us as followers of Jesus. He's scheming against you as an individual follower of Jesus, and he is scheming against us as a collection of followers of Jesus. He wants to kill you. Satan wants to kill you, and he wants to destroy this church. That's his goal. That's his mission. That's his agenda. That's what he lives for. He wants to kill you, and he wants to destroy this church. And he is scheming all the time how to do that. How has he schemed in Corinth? How has he sought to fulfill his mission in Corinth? Well, there was temptation to sin, right? Whether it's the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or whether it's some guy who's got some personal beef with Paul, he's scheming by tempting people to sin. And people are sinning. And he's also scheming by divisiveness in the church at Corinth. I of Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, right? All these divisions within the church. Who's behind that? Satan's behind that. He's scheming by divisiveness. He's scheming by apathy and unwillingness to confront. It seems like back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that people are aware, well aware that this dude's sleeping with his father's wife, but nobody wants to do anything about it. In fact, they've gone beyond, oh, we just that's, that's embarrassing. We don't want to talk about that. They're like suddenly proud of it. Satan has schemed against them so much that rather than confronting the man in their sin, they put him on the poster uh, to invite people to the church. Look, look how inclusive and accepting we are. Mr. X, who sleeps with his father's wife, is one of our deacons. Paul says, this is crazy. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet that's the direction Satan will take us. He'll move us from apathy and unwillingness to confront each other in our sin to even pride in embracing our sin. He will scheme against us even if we do try to confront each other. He'll scheme against us at that point by making us vindictive and self-righteous. 
When we do confront one another in our sin, it'll be ugly and nasty and not for the purpose of repentance, not for the purpose of restoration, but for the purpose of getting even and a pound of flesh or something like that. He will scheme even then. And then if we do that part right, if, if, we, if we somehow get it right and a brother does repent and wants to be restored, he'll scheme by saying, don't welcome him back. He can't be trusted. Keep him out. I don't care how long he wants to come back. I don't care how much repentance he's living in. Satan will scheme even then. What I'm saying is every step of the way, every step we take in our life together, Satan is scheming against us. Do not be ignorant of his schemes against us. Fight him. Fight him for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God. Frank Matera said, Satan is continually devising plans to destroy the community for example, by providing the, Christ, the Corinthians with seemingly good excuses for not forgiving the offender. They seem to have good excuses not to welcome him back. But Satan is at work in that. Expository commentary says, withholding of forgiveness is satanic. It may feel righteous, it may feel morally serious, but it is to align with hell rather than heaven. Satan's scheme there at the end to keep you from forgiving one another. Marshall Seagal says, Satan loathes forgiveness. Forgiveness offends everything he stands for and fights against. He relentlessly accuses morning, afternoon, evening, and night, hurling our sins like stones against us. Accuser is who he is, and therefore forgiveness is his sworn enemy. Forgiveness contradicts his existence. Forgiveness defies his life's work. To him, forgiveness is hostility. And this guy goes on and says, Therefore, maybe the most effective way to wage spiritual warfare today would be for us to, be, to more quickly and freely forgive. Have you ever thought about wielding forgiveness as a weapon against the enemy? Do you ever think that, like, like hold forgiveness as a weapon against the enemy who would love for us to be unforgiving? For that bitterness to just take root in our hearts? to do like the wicked slave and shun the forgiveness we have received by not giving it to other people? Put forgiveness in your arsenal as you fight against Satan. We must not let Satan take advantage of us. We must not let him take advantage of us. He hates us and wants to destroy us. He hates you as an individual and he wants to destroy you. Let's be clear about that. And he hates First Baptist Church, hates it, and wants to destroy it. And we must not let him take advantage of us. Every step of our lives, he's hating us. Every step of our lives, he's scheming against us. So what do we do? We fight him every step of the way. We fight him every step of the way. We resist temptation when it comes. We resist it. We don't go down that road. We fight the sin in our own lives. We pursue righteousness and holiness in, in living. We confront the truth. We confront each other with the truth in love. We love the people in our lives enough to warn them of the dangers of sin in their lives. We discipline one another toward repentance. We do the hard thing in confrontation to bring about repentance when we are the offender, we receive rebuke. We receive the correction. And we repent. Quick. One of my 
favorite books that we've read with a bunch of guys here at First Baptist over the last couple of years says, fall fast. Fall fast. Recognize you've messed it up royally and fall on your face quickly before you take down a whole bunch of other people with you. Like when you are confronted, when you are rebuked, repent quickly. That'll fight against Satan. The more you bow up and say, how dare you talk to me like that? How dare you talk to me about this thing in my life when you've got these things in your life? I'll repent when you repent. That stuff happens in the church. And, and, and the enemy just laughs all, the whole way. When we are confronted, when we're rebuked, we must repent. And when there's repentance, there must be forgiveness and restoration. When there's repentance, there must be forgiveness and restoration. When the work, the hard work, bears fruit, rejoice and restore the brother. Reaffirm your love for him, comfort him, and forgive him. Lest he drown in the sorrow and despair. Welcome him back. And in all this, we must not forget that we have been redeemed and forgiven in Christ. All this is motivated by the redemption and forgiveness that we have in Christ. He is the source of all grace. So, so if you don't know that grace, if you don't know that forgiveness, repent and believe today. Find grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like begging you, be reconciled to God. And if you are, Remember the forgiveness and reconciliation. Remember the redemption that has been brought to you in Christ as we take the supper. And remember that our unity is in Christ. We are one in Christ. He is the source of our unity. So remember that when we take the supper. What binds us together? At First Baptist Church, what binds us together? The gospel binds us together. The grace of God binds us together. And if we settle for something less than that as what binds us together, we will have failed and the enemy will have taken advantage of us. What binds us together? Oh, we just all like the same things and we all get along. What binds us together? Oh, we all vote the same way at the booth. What binds us together? Oh, we all make about the same money. No. All of that is meaningless. What binds us together? Jesus' body and blood given for us the grace of God that restores us to fellowship with him, the hope of the gospel. That's what binds us together. Let's remember that as we take the supper. Stand with me and pray. Father, help us in these moments to begin to respond to your word. Help us to be mindful of the schemes of Satan against us, against you, trying to steal and kill and destroy all the time. Help us fight by resisting temptation by confronting each other in truth and love, by disciplining each other for repentance, by receiving discipline and repenting, and by forgiving one another and restoring one another. Help us remember always that our redemption and forgiveness is in Christ. Help us remember that our unity is found in Christ. Help us to celebrate that with the bread and the cup. In the moments ahead, we pray in Jesus' name.